Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for today's program, your, pre- um, your presenter today is myself, Jacob. And we're going to be having uh, a bit of a special um, guest presenter who'll be helping us um, today, um, Leo, um, who is going to be coming in soon. He's just um, running a bit late. And and I guess we have a pretty packed program today, actually. Um, we're going to be having a bit of a long discussion with Ian Ellis-Jones about some of the current kind of developments that are happening in Cuba. And then we'll be giving, um, we'll be hearing from two, um, um, we'll be hearing from two union activists, um, including the Assistant Secretary of the MUA about the um, Switzer dispute that is currently happening, um, that's currently underway with the MUA. And then of course we'll be speaking to HOSPO voice, um, member, a HOSPO voice member about the new tier, to discuss the new tiered membership structure that, um, the Shrey, um, that the HOSPO voice union has introduced. And why it's ultimately a negative thing um, for, um, and why it's ultimately a negative thing for the trade union movement. Now, the um, first thing I'd like to do is I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today and Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from the stolen lands of the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to pay our respect. Um, to all elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that FreeCR and Green Left Radio supports the fight back of Indigenous people struggling for their land and or, or, and not just in Australia but all around um, globally. Now, I guess to get into a kind of um, a bit of the kind of latest kind of news stories um, that are kind of happening... Probably one of the things that has dominated the headlines for the past week has been the unfolding COVID-19 situation in New South Wales. Now, there were kind of a number of interesting kind of developments um, that happened on that area. So right now, New South Wales is, as of of yesterday, today's case numbers aren't in yet, as far as I know. Um, New South Wales had recorded around over around 38 new local COVID-19 um, cases. And of course, this is at the time where um, just this Friday, um, the, the current kind of lockdown that has been imposed in New South Wales was in, expected to ease. And now obviously, as a result of, of this, um, the, as a result of this, um, the locked, um, uh, the current levels of COVID-19 cases, the lockdown has been extended for another week. Now, there were kind of a number of interesting kind of things that sort of, um, to note about this. 
and that is yesterday there was a number of comments from um, the health minister of New South Wales in, and even Gladios um, Bokashani, all kind of made this kind of comment. And one of the sort of things that has made the the COVID-19 impact worse in New South Wales has been the fact um, that um, the Delta variant has been um, found in the community, which is a lot more infectious um, than the previous sort of variants of COVID-19. And I guess the other kind of thing to note is there were kind of like a number of um, comments made by the health minister basically saying that, oh, we may never get this COVID-19 outbreak in New South Wales under control. And, of course, that was kind of met with some comments, um, responses from state premiers, because overall most of the um, the states around um, Australia have, adop- have adopted a strategy of suppressing and eliminating COVID-19 from the community. And essentially New South- the New South Wales sort of government minister's response is that COVID-19 will have to live with COVID-19 in the community, uh, um, was sort of met with massive backlash with, from the WA Premier saying that, you know, we'll close the, we'll keep the borders closed and let, until you get COVID-19 under control. Now, just to, um, um, pause that for, um, sort for a moment, we'll proceed the discussion, but I just want to introduce our guest presenter, um, Leo. So good morning, Leo. Good morning, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to today's discussions. Yeah. So, um, as you probably, you just walked in and you're probably hearing that I was just having a bit of a discussion about the, um, the COVID kind of 19 kind of pandemic, um, that's kind of unfolding in New South Wales. I guess I wanted to, Leo, this is sort of something that you've kind of written about because I'm um, just for, um, um, for listeners information, Leo is a reg, um, is a regular writer for Green Left. And one sort of thing he has, um, written about in the past has been on the whole kind of subject of, of police and, I want to kind of hear your kind of comments because one of the things that came out of the New South Wales government kind of response is um, that they're going to be sending extra kind of police presence in southwest kind of based suburbs of um, of New South Wales, um, such as Fairfield, um, Liverpool, and I think there was another suburb, but though it's within those sort of suburbs, which are some are usually from low kind of social economic kind of areas of Sydney. And, of course, it seems to be, yeah, I want to kind of hear your kind of comments on that kind of police kind of response. Yeah, that's right, Jacob. Um, the New South Wales Premier and the Police Minister have indicated there's going to be a police operation conducted um, in Western Sydney, South West Sydney specifically, Um you know, in their words, to ensure compliance with the various COVID-19 restrictions, of course, lockdown being extended for a at least another week. Um, and, you know, there are a number of aspects to this um, sort of announcement. Um, first of all, it's been met by opposition from community leaders, um, even local Labor MPs who uh, say that, you know, this will exacerbate tensions. And it's important to know that um, you know, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, Australia has taken a quite uh, militarised and police-centric um, approach to enforcing restrictions. Um, you know, rather than treating it like the public health um, uh, situation that it is, often jurisdictions in Australia have, um, you know, employed use of the police. We've seen that last year in Victoria with the lockdown of the public housing towers. Um, 
and the demographics and the similarities between these two situations um, is really what's at stake here. Of course, um, Western Sydney and Southwest Sydney um, is an area, like you say, that is heavily populated by migrant communities, by working class communities. And, you know, one, one wonders whether this same sort of treatment um, would be afforded to more affluent areas um, that have also um, seen um, similar outbreaks. For example, um, late last year, around New Year's, um, the Northern Beaches cluster did attract extra police, but the same sort of level of, um, of police presence, police intimidation was not the same. Of course, the Avalon cluster that we saw here in Victoria and Melbourne, um, once again, was not met with the same level of police opposition. So from my perspective, um, this sort of shows the really um, backhanded approach that the New South Wales government is taking. Um, I hope this will be reversed, but um, you know this will not only have a detrimental impact on um, you know ties with the community, exacerbating tensions, but it will also arguably see less compliance um, with COVID-19 restrictions as people see that it's um, something you know that criminalises them and that you know seeks to punish them rather than um, you know enforce this sort of um, public health risk. Yeah, and I guess adding on to some of your comments um, is just thinking about, um, you know, just that because we've all lived from this from this kind of COVID nineteen panic. Um, in fact, I just got a Facebook memory um, last year. Apparently, I took my first COVID nineteen test, which just kind of reminded me about how long we've kind of been living through this. But just. As someone who kind of like, I think we all kind of followed the kind of daily kind of press conferences or the kind of outbreaks as they kind of happened. And, you know, I think one sort of thing about this whole police response. Now, obviously, you know, we have, we obviously have this perspective on the program that, you know, the police are no friends of working class people and, and so on. But I kind of want to just sort of take this sort of perspective of this, the government policy of trying to enforce um, punitive measures in terms of compliance with this um, COVID-19 outbreak. And I guess my sort of thing is I've actually not seen much strong evidence that a lot of these leaks or COVID-19 outbreaks have necessarily been linked to people behaving irresponsibly. And I think the actual kind of fact of the matter is the majority of people have actually been completely compliant with the rules. Um, and in fact, a lot of the, the, the outbreaks and the issues, like for example, going back to the Victorian outbreak, why did the Victorian, um, going back to the second lockdown that happened last year, that was actually an issue of hotel quarantine, a hotel quarantine link, um, leak. And then of course, there was a whole issue of casualized work, etc. And then there was all this sort of discourse around, you know, casualized work being, uh, an infected, um, being like, con- contributing to the outbreak. And then of course, all, since then, subsequently, all the kind of outbreaks have actually been since linked to hotel quarantine links and so on. Basically, a lot of it, all, a lot of these issue, outbreaks have actually been linked to incompetence at the mm. top, not necessarily incompetence from, um, from below. Uh, yeah. That's a very good way of putting it, Jacob. And, you know, it must be said, you know, there of course is a role for law enforcement to play in enforcing restrictions. Now I'd feel much more comfortable with that, you know, enforcement being done by, you know, public health teams with the Department of Health, for example, rather than police. But, you know, you're completely right in putting it that way. Um, a lot of the incompetence has come from the top. Um, 
rather um, than the bottom. And the vast majority of people are compliant with COVID-19 restrictions. They want to see, um, you know, their communities, their families, their friends um, being safe and not under threat. And it's a very sort of neoliberal mentality um, to individualise blame for these um, sort of outbreaks. Um, you know, neoliberalism as an ideology, not just as an economic system, but as a way of... Um, you know, understanding society atomizes individuals and it doesn't really look at these systemic issues. And um, if we are to look at something as global as the COVID-19 pandemic, we have to make sure um, that we understand that it isn't one or two people um, to blame for these things. And that's been the issue throughout, um, not just with the government response, but with the media response as well. There's been a hyper-focus on individuals, on uh, what individuals have or haven't been doing, on um, you know, these supposed super spreader events, meticulously tracking the movements, judging the movements of people that have been infected with COVID-19. Um, you know, that's partially motivated by the profit incentive that a lot of these private media organizations have. It would definitely generate a lot of clicks if you, you know, judge, you know, whether someone has gone to heaps of clubs or bars or they've been to, you know, a number of Bunnings. Um, but, at the end of the day, this is a systemic issue. Um, so far in New South Wales, there has been no recorded outdoor spread of COVID-19 during the pandemic. And this is what really annoys me about, um, you know, pictures about people, for example, uh, walking outside or congregating in, you know, what appears to be, um, you know, groups outside. Um, being outside is safer, as many epidemiologists have indicated. And I think it's important to take a step back and focus away from this liberal commentary of, you know, what individuals might or might not be doing and instead look at the systemic issues, which, you know, is the lack of um, specific quarantine facilities and, of course, the absolutely shamefully slow uh, vaccine rollout. Hmm. Yeah, I think those are all very kind of fair comments. Um, now, I think we'll, we're about, I think in a minute, we're going to be doing our first interview for the program. I'll just quickly play a few announcements and then we'll move on to that first interview. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 8.55am. It is 7.14am. And um, yeah, I'll just um, play an announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more. July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. 
The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand You could never understand Feel the fortune flowing You know it isn't stuck All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our first guest on the program, um, we're very happy to have Ian Ellis-Jones um, on our on our program today. He is uh, a member of Social Science who is currently based in Sydney, and he has um, been a re- he's been a regular kind of commentator of late um, for Green Left on Cuba. And Cuba is um is a country we actually haven't covered significantly in in a while so we had we're having ian on to have a bit of a kind of discussion about some of the current kind of developments that are happening in cuba um especially the development of the covid vaccine um their current relationship with the united states who has still imposed a kind of trade embargo and also maybe a sort of a bit of a summary of you know politics in cuba some of the kind of recent kind of developments and so yeah good morning ian good morning jacob thank, thank you for having me on the program yeah. Um, so, Ian, maybe to kind of start off, maybe just for our kind of listeners, um, what can you can you, what can you tell us about you know some of the current sort of developments um, that have happened in Cuba later, as well as I guess a summary, I guess of where where the country is currently at in terms of yeah its politics and so on. Yes. Well, um, the major issue facing Cuba at the moment, like so many other countries, is COVID nineteen. Cuba was doing extremely well throughout all of last year. Um, they had a number of advantages, um, a centralised health system and free universal health care. And uh, would you believe the, the world's highest ratio of doctors to population? And there were a lot of other um, good indicators that helped Cuba deal with COVID throughout last year, high life expectancy and low infant mortality, which the rate of infant mortality over there is lower than the United States. Um, so that's something to ponder on. Late last year, they started opening up the country again to tourism. And I'll talk about the obvious economic effects of not having tourists throughout uh, most of last year. But when they opened up um, and developments in COVID itself, variants coming along, the Brazil variant, and more recently the Delta one, they've really smashed hard. And at the moment in Cuba, they're looking at round about 2,000 new cases a day. Overall, since COVID started, they've had about 2,000, uh, sorry, 203,000 cases, about 1,200 mortalities. Um, but at the moment, you're running at about 2,000 cases a day, and that's proving quite difficult. Uh, it's had an enormous economic effect, of course, because tourism is their major industry and have, have, has been for some time. Uh, most of their tourists come from, um, from, from Canada, uh, a few from the United States, not as many as before. Quite a few from Europe, even some from Australia, including my own family. Um, but yeah, tourism has been hit hard, and so the economy has been hit hard. In terms of COVID, though, there's been a number of interesting developments. Um, 
for a number of years now, and you mentioned the embargo, and we can talk about that later, the longest-running embargo in the world in modern times, it's quite obscene, the effects that it's had on the Cuban people and the Cuban economy, and it's been totally ineffective. It hasn't achieved its objective of regime change. But Cuba has produces about 80% of its own vaccine, all types of inoculations. And in terms of COVID-19, last year they developed four separate vaccines, three of them injectable, um, Soberano 1, Soberano 2, Abdullah, and then there's an, a, a vaccine which is um, developed, which is used by way of a nasal spray called Mambisa. Now, in March this year, they started, well, they fully vaccinated all healthcare workers, and mid-May, they started um, inoculating the general population. They don't have a great problem over there with anti-vaxxers. There's a lot of faith in the medical system, the doctors. And so getting people to come up and be vaccinated is not a big issue over there. At the moment, they're looking at... It's got about... Uh, of a population of 11.3 million people, about 2.2 million have already been vaccinated. Of those, I think 1.7 million have had their first dose. And... Uh, Sorry, 1.7 have had their second dose and 900,000 their third dose. They're mainly using a, a dose that they've developed themselves, Abdallah, which is named after a, uh, a character in a famous poem of that name by Jose Marti, who was a great war hero over there and patriot. Dead now, but uh, if there is a patron saint of Cuba, it's uh, it's um, Jose Marti. Well, Abdallah was a was a character in this poem that stood up to foreign interference and intervention, and a very appropriate name for a vaccine. Mm. So they're using that. It's effective uh, about ninety two point two eight percent in three doses. So the big issue to summarise is that uh, is to, is COVID to get that under control. The, the, the embargo has had some effect there, unfortunately, negative effect, of course, in that oh, there's a shortage of uh, needles and syringes and water purification equipment. Um, Cuba's developed its own antigen diagnostic system and its own vaccines, but there's some ancillary equipment and supplies that they haven't been able to get. And we can talk about the embargo, but it, it's been hitting hard, hmm. uh, particularly under Trump. And yeah. Biden's made no positive changes to reverse any of those horrible things either. Yeah, so Ian, I think you've made a kind of like a very good kind of summary. Um, and I guess your your kind of answer has sort of opened up sort of two kind of different kind of aspects I kind of want to explore. And I guess yeah. the kind of first kind of aspect is, um, I, the second aspect I'll just say is I want to kind of explore kind of like a discussion with the kind of impacts of the trade embargo. But I think the first sort of question I'm sort of interested in asking is... More, one of the things that Cuba is kind of known for is its commitment to kind of global kind of solidarity. And in, I guess, the context of this whole COVID-19 vaccine apartheid, i.e. the fact that most of the global North countries, like the United States, Canada, Australia, the UK, have kind of like bought up all the kind of best sort of um, vaccines and of course Cuba being a global south country um, that you know doesn't have access to the the kind of medical infrastructure that countries like the United States um, have what what has been you know Cuba's kind of role in terms of you know 
its distribution of the of um of the vaccine to you know its other neighbours, like including countries like Venezuela, um and 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 so on, which have you know some of these countries and also other countries in Latin America who have had difficulties um securing um COVID nineteen vaccines. Yeah, well, you, you're, you're quite right. I mean, look, since about 1961, uh, Fidel Castro developed the Henry Reeve Brigade, which is an international brigade of Cuban doctors that go out to trouble parts of the world, maybe earthquake or famine or other disaster, human-made or natural. And it's been a remarkable thing. And coupled with the literacy campaign, of, which is even operated in Australia with Indigenous communities and in Western parts of Sydney, where there are also Indigenous communities and uh, poorer communities generally. It's an incredible thing. Only this past week, a, a large shipment of Cuban COVID-2 vaccines has been delivered to Venezuela. Um, and also Mexico, Bolivia, Jamaica and Argentina have expressed interest as well. Cuban doctors have already been to places like Mexico and Venezuela, places that the United States in particular tends to ignore or treat contemptuously and uh, or very, very badly in the case of Venezuela. So you've got Cuban doctors going there as well. They have already been there um, helping out with um, COVID vaccinations and other health care problems. So, yeah, the Henry Reeve Brigade is just an incredible world wonder. It's been recently nominated for a Nobel um, Peace Prize for its humanitarian work over many, many decades. In terms of the vaccine itself, Cuba decided some time ago that with the embargo, it had to be self-sufficient in medical supplies as much as possible and uh, and also in the production of vaccines and um, associated equipment. But it's, it's, it's had to get some supplies, including some American supplies from third-party countries like Mexico, for example, if you want a Coca-Cola in, in, in Cuba, you can get it at an inflated price, but it has to go from the United States to Mexico and then to Cuba. America has been hitting hard third countries supplying Cuba, trading with Cuba, or in any way having dealings with Cuba. Even Australia has a small amount of trade with Cuba and has always had diplomatic relations with Cuba, never broke, as did the United States for many, many decades. Um, but... America is punishing other countries that have any sort of dealings with Cuba. Now, and some German companies, you might have heard of Merck, M-E-R-C-K, supplier of pharmaceutical products and equipment. They've got so scared of the United States' fear of reprisals that they've stopped supplying drugs and other medical equipment to Cuba. So the embargo is hitting hard and very perversely. But, um, yeah, America's done a great job in helping those countries that other countries particularly the Western world, particularly the United States, ignores yeah. for political reasons. Ju- just to go jump... into that later, why, why the embargo persists, when so many Americans actually have been polled and don't want it to mm. continue. But it's a narrow group of people in America, and we can talk about them, uh, who, keep, who keep the embargo alive. It's purely internal politics and a lot to do with Florida. Just to jump in there, Ian, good morning. Uh, This is Leo, one of the other co-presenters of the program uh, today. Um, Before we, just before we talk about the embargo, I just want to touch on a couple of points um, there around diplomatic relations. Um, I think 2020, um, a lot of 
uh, people that aren't necessarily in left-wing socialist um, circles um, experience that sort of sense of solidarity uh, with the Cuban government for the first time, as you say, with the um, doctors assisting overseas with the COVID-19 pandemic. This was especially notable in Italy during the heart of their um, pandemic in early 2020. So I was just wondering, um, over these past, you know, 12 to 18 months, um, how Cuba's international standing in the international community has um, evolved and how, you know, the diplomatic relations have evolved in this way and to what extent this has created tensions with the U.S., um, which, you know, um, no doubt would seek to monopolize um, this sort of feel-good factor um, in assistance and foreign aid, um, especially within Latin America. Thank you. Look, um, the Cuban medical diplomacy and its uh, its literacy campaign that's been operating since 1961 uh, throughout the world, first in Cuba in that year and throughout the world since, including Australia, have kept the reputation of Cuba extremely high. On, on the downside, you've got uh, some a fair bit of negative publicity recently, and I have to mention it. Uh, you know, some left-wingers would not want to mention it, but you've probably heard of a group called the Human Rights Watch. And uh, it's uh, been very concerned about Cuba in recent times in terms of what it describes as systemic human rights abuses against some independent artists, musicians and journalists, the San Isidora movement. Um, on the... To, just to qualify that and modify any criticism of Cuba in relation to that and those people who have been critical internally of Cuba, um, the United States is very much supporting this group of independent artists, so-called independent artists and musicians and journalists, uh, with money and, 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 and is stirring them up with a view to creating as much uh, negative publicity worldwide for Cuba as possible. But look, in the ultimate forum, one that matters, the United Nations, for the last 29 years, and as recently as one, two weeks ago at the most, uh, there has been a, a motion put before the General Assembly, which has been passed each of those 29 years, condemning the United States for its embargo. And in recent times, the only countries that have voted against this motion have been the United States and Israel. And that was the situation uh, this year. Sometimes Australia has abstained on that vote, but this year it voted in favour of the motion to condemn the United States. So, and, and the United States keeps raising in the discussion in the United Nations General Assembly on this motion, oh, but what about the human rights abuses? And the United Nations has found that there are no appreciable systemic human rights abuses in Cuba that in any way ought to that could possibly reasonably justify the continuance of this embargo. So I would say that on, on balance, uh, the reputation of Cuba worldwide is deservedly very high indeed. I mean, just to come in, I guess, with a comment there, um, just in general about kind of trade embargoes, um, mm. I don't think, I mean, as a kind of socialist or someone on, on the left, I don't, uh, any kind of impo ec impose economic embargo on any country, I don't think can necessarily be justified um, in a sense that that said, I mean, I, I do, you know, in terms of like countries like Israel and, and so on and um, countries that, you know, run apartheid kind of states and, and so on. Obviously, there's a case to be made for some kind of, you know, sanctions, but on but 
the practice of kind of economic kind of embargoes, um, like on say for like countries like Iran, you know, which are, you know, Iran does have a very repressive government, um, yeah. has not ne- never necessarily been kind of justified from any sort of socialist or progressive perspective because the economic embargo doesn't necessarily, um, impact uh, the economic embargoes have always disproportionately impacted on the working class people of those countries the people who are not necessarily the ones who have influence over whatever repressive regime happens to kind of run those particular countries and of course the economic embargoes are never necessary when it comes uh, as they're imposed by the u.s you know it's quite a lot it's very hypocritical for them to go on about human rights because actually the main reason is actually their imperialist interests really um it's motivated by their own sort of economic kind of self-interest but at the same time it's at the same time you know the u.s has lots of dealings with countries that commit human rights and of course let's not even get started on the united states own problems with um human rights um, both in the country in terms of its treatment of African-Americans, but also what it kind of has does uh, across the world in terms of its imperialist role in that in the world. Yes. Look, one of the things that one Biden's spokesperson on Latin American affairs and Cuba, Cuba in particular, Cuba in particular, Juan Gonzalez, has said that two things will govern U.S. foreign policy toward Cuba, human rights and democracy. And as you say, it's quite ironic because... In recent times, the United States has given $12 million to Colombia, and most of that has gone to Colombia's security forces that have been implicated in extrajudicial killings and, and, and opening fire on unarmed civilians. You've mentioned Israel with its, with its apartheid system, and, and uh, we've got Saudi Arabia, a most repressive absolute monarchy, um, which doesn't... It's quite happy to stoop to assassinations of journalists and others when it suits its purposes. It all gets down to geopolitical considerations. Now, Cuba was effectively a de facto American protectorate from 1902. Even before then, there was a U.S. military government in, in, in Cuba after Spanish independence from Spain. Uh, but, but until 1958, the end of 1958, um, you had effectively a de facto protectorate. And, and during that period, there were two brutal uh, regimes, and there were several regimes, but the two main ones were Machado and Batista. Both of them were backed by the US. It was a, it was a, a gambling mecca. It was a, just a, every conceivable vice was there, uh, with the president getting anything from two percent to ten percent of the takings from the casinos. This was a this was a sort of country that a lot of ultra right wing uh, Cuban Americans would like to see back again. And they, they regarded it as a great democracy, but it wasn't. It was a failed democracy. And uh, under all those regimes, and at times the most brutal military dictatorships, even America cut Batista adrift towards the end in the late 50s. Unfortunately, if America can't control a country, uh, it, it will try to destroy it or its people. And Cuba's of enormous geopolitical significance, its location, just a short distance from, from Miami. You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, 151 kilometres or so from, from Miami. It's very important geopolitically. That became clear in the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, which I'm old enough to remember quite well. It was a very scary time. And, um, you know, America would still like to... It's just, it's incredible. I mean, look, Chinese Americans don't determine U.S. policy towards China. Russian Americans don't determine U.S. policy toward Russia. 
but a very small group of Cuban-Americans, ultra-right-wing, uh, very capitalist Cubans in Miami, many of them who had ancestors that were croupiers in the casinos and involved in other unsavory activities. And in fairness, some of them were just small business people who, who had their properties nationalised. They're very bitter. And they, they determine US policy toward Cuba because why is it that they don't, why is it the Chinese Americans don't do it or, or Russian Americans or French Americans? Because they can't swing an election, but Cuban Americans can. The key battleground state of Florida. So that's what keeps the uh, embargo alive. It's not really America's hatred of, of, of communism. Yes, it hates communism. It equates socialism with communism, but um, it's not really that even. It's purely. It still has diplomatic relations with Cuba. That was it was restored in with embargo, but effectively the the embassy in Havana is is just non-functioning. And if Cubans want to, they have to go elsewhere. They can't do business through the Cuban embassy at the moment. Trump Trump would say I succeeded in changing Cuba to some extent because the embargoes uh, he increased the embargoes on Cuba last year and the year before very very severely. And Cuba's been forced to make a number of changes. And you asked earlier about some of the big developments in Cuba at the moment. And one of them is the growing private sector. Of a population of about 11.3 million, you've got almost half to three-quarters of a million people who are now self-employed and who can actually form companies uh, before they could be self-employed, but they, they couldn't actually sort of incorporate uh, an entity, but they can now, and uh, there's only a, a limited number of areas in which they can't work. So the growing private sector, free enterprise, they call it, is uh, is is uh, incredible. And even Raúl Castro, when he was president, said that we've got a rather unjust inverted pyramid in this country. He said we've got lawyers and doctors and engineers and scientists who are earning much, much less than tour guides and waiters and taxi drivers. Now, some socialists would say, well, what, what's, what's wrong with that? But with it, you do get a brain drain, and Cuba lost a lot of its very well-qualified people. It's got some great universities over there, but they've been losing a lot of people to other countries in the region and to the United States because they're just not getting... They can get better remuneration elsewhere. When I was over there, we were driven around much of the country by a taxi driver who used to teach, who was a professor of English at uh, Pina del Rio University. But he gets more money driving a taxi, being self-employed. Mind you, that, that I've heard the same phenomenon over here. Um, Leah wanted to come in with a question. Yeah, just yeah. really quickly, um, on two sort of prongs. Um, first of all, um, just if you could expand that discussion of... Um, the right-wing Cubans, um, especially, who are often, I guess, um, um, homogenized as part of the Latin American community in the U.S. and seen as, I guess, the spokespeople for that community. And if you could, uh, yeah, perhaps touch on the impact that these diaspora communities have and this historical memory um, on influencing um U.S. politics and, you know, especially within the context of Florida, as you mentioned there, um, that would be my first question. And the second one, um, whether there are any sort of um, developments with the Guantanamo Bay detention camp and um, what um, likelihood, if any, uh, there is to the Biden administration having any major sort of um, changes in policy in that area. Yes, thank you. Look, starting with, first of all, the Cuban diaspora, largely in Florida, but uh, it is spread to other parts of the world. Um, 
and United States. It's not a new development, and it didn't start on the 1st of January 1959. Uh, there'd been earlier revolutions before the 59 revolution. Uh, the, one of the most prominent ones was in 1933, when the then president, Gerardo Machado, was deposed in a in a coup that ultimately led to a sergeant's revolt and Fulgencio Batista coming to power, and he was in and out of power until 1959. But the first big diaspora of Cubans to the United States was in 1933. And um, that revolution that occurred in that year, Machado started out as quite a democratic and fair president, but ultimately became extremely brutal. And it was largely a communist coup that uh, led him that brought Batista into power. And although he was largely anti-communist, uh, they had a strange coalition from time to time with uh, between right and left, which you can get in some countries. And it seems so unlikely, but it does happen. But the first diaspora was around about 1933. Probably some Cubans went before then. But they have been characterised by basically being fairly well-to-do, um, normally self-employed, uh, property owners who have been dispossessed, right-wing, very anti-socialist, very anti-communist, and that has continued to this day and, and, and all throughout the 50, late uh, well, 60s and 70s and beyond. There's been a continued diaspora of people trying to leave, and some scarcely leaving Cuba. Now, they, I wouldn't say that all... It seems like around about 70% of... Uh, Cuban-Americans are fairly right-wing and would probably vote for someone like Trump, but not all of them are. Some of them are left-wing, and there's been demonstrations in recent times, counter-demonstrations in places like Miami last year during the presidential campaign, uh, campaigning against the, campaigning for the removal of the embargo. So, I mean, the, some of the more educated ones, the, the, the more university-educated ones that have gone to America... Uh, see how cruel the embargo is. Um, others, they just don't seem to care. They they don't seem to realise that the embargo is, has not brought about regime change, uh, but has basically just hurt ordinary ordinary Cubans very badly. Sorry, what was the second question? Was about um, uh, just about Guantanamo Bay. Whether there's any Guantanamo sort of developments? Yeah, Guantanamo yep. Bay was leased to America around about 1902, uh, when um, Cuba supposedly, May 20, 1902, got independence. But it was a funny sort of independence because a long period of US neo-colonisation continued until the end of 58. Uh, the Cuban government was largely forced as part of an agreement of independence. I should go back a bit. The, the war between Cuba and Spain, there were actually three long liberation wars over a 30-year period between 1868 and 1898. The Americans came in at the end, Spanish-American War, ostensibly to fight, to help the Cubans fight the Spanish, but really they had an ulterior motive. As one US president said, we saw that Cuba was ripe, a ripe fruit, ripe for picking. So America went in there and as part of an independence agreement, it secured a 200-year lease over Guantanamo Bay for a peppercorn rent. Barack Obama said, promised to close it down because it's the most inhumane place. Um, I've been close to it, but I haven't actually been been in the province of Guantanamo, but not to the prison. 
But he didn't. He wasn't successful in getting it closed down. Uh, Trump had no intention of closing it down. And Biden, although he promised reforms, he was rather nonspecific about the uh, the reforms, but he did speak of the embargo serving no useful purpose. And he was concerned that Trump had stopped even remittances, remittances, money going from Cuban Americans, particularly in Florida, to relatives in Cuba, that that had been cut down as well, cut out by 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 by, um, by uh, Trump, which resulted in Western Union offices all over Cuba closing. Uh, Biden said, that's no good. I will restore, will restore remittances and, and loosen up travel restrictions on Americans getting to Cuba. But he, uh, he didn't speak about Guantanamo Bay, to my knowledge, and certainly nothing has happened. Um, it's not a big priority. The Democrats have been very much on the back foot with respect to Cuba. Uh, they have been the subject of a lot of criticism, and they're trying to... Um, to trying to you know win back some some of these Cuban Americans or win them over, uh, gain their trust, and so sadly in the short to medium term, I don't see any major changes in uh, U.S. policy toward Cuba, and I think that Guantanamo Bay will continue to operate as a as a prison. It's not being much used at the moment, uh, but it's still there. And um, I, I, when I was in Cuba, I bought a book by Fidel Castro, one of the last he wrote. Hey, Ian, on, um, yes. Just apologies. Um, I think you kind of ended on a good note kind of there. Um, we'd you. love to hear your story. Um, but unfortunately we, um, we're running out of time and we've got to get on That's to fine. the kind of next no interview. No worries at all. I'm sorry about that. But yeah, thank you very much, um, Ian. Um, I think you've, um, given a, a fantastic kind of overview of all the kind of recent kind of developments in Cuba. And yeah, we might have you on our program again, maybe in the, um, the future when more kind of developments happen because we're definitely interested in covering Cuba more regularly for Green Left Radio. Thank you. Happy um, to speak anytime and thank you thank you both Jacob and Liam thank you very much have a good day yep you too Ian bye 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 all right, so you're just listening to Ian Ellis um, Jones, um, who we had a big, um, who had a, a bit of a long discussion about all the kind of current kind of developments that have happened in Cuba. So, yep, yeah, I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, and we'll move on to the next interview for our program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio. And for, we just have our next guest on our program, following our first. Um, we have Grace Dowling on, on our program today. Um, Grace Dowling is a member of Hospo Voice and obviously a, hosp- a hospitality worker and has also been, uh, ac- and has also been active in her union. And of course, um, just recently, um, the United, um, um, 
Hospo Voice introduced, I guess, a tiered kind of membership structure. So we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with her about that. But I'll pass it on to our co-presenter, Leo, to ask the first um, question. Hi, Grace. Uh, thanks for joining us on the program. I guess I'll start off, um, you know, uh, with a bit of a question around what the tiered system actually looks like. Um, and we'll get to... Um, the open letter um, that's been initiated by some Hospital Voice activists later, but it's entitled This Is Not What Solidarity Looks Like. Could you explain um, what this tiered system is and why it isn't um, reflective of these union uh, values of solidarity? Sure, I can, and thanks you guys for having me on this morning. But um, So basically what's happened is, is Hospital Voice has released a new tiered membership uh, choose model. So basically it's come out and... Um, restructured the way that members will be paying their dues. So there are three levels, tiers now, um, that members will be able to select from. There's level one, which is basic, which is $9.99 a month. There's a standard, which is $29.99 a month. And then there's premium, which is uh, $89.99 a month. Um, so the membership tiers actually have uh, will be providing access or allowing access to members to different services and different um, kind of areas of the union, I suppose. So the standard, at the, uh, as far as the current model suggests, will basically be um, the bare minimum. So you'll kind of be in the Facebook group, you can come along to campaigns, you'll get the emails. Um, the, the standard, so the middle one, is you'll get kind of what's already on offer now to the, for the most part. So it's just the app that we have called Mobilize. Um, and then there are all these new kind of things that have been tacked on there, like... Uh, uh, industry masterclasses and workshops and things like that. Um, and then the premium kind of, it's when they start to talk about legal representation and um, after there are other things, like after three months you become eligible to uh, claim mental health services. It's, yeah, it's pretty bizarre. So what they've done essentially is um, <laughs> imply or escape that, um, yeah, members earning different amounts, I suppose, or with the capacity to pay different amounts will therefore have their <laughs> the capacity to access uh, union kind of resources, um, you know, respectively adjusted. So it's, yeah, it's pretty bizarre. <laughs> it does certainly seem bizarre, as you've said. I mean, um, you know, tiered membership uh, systems or payments um, are nothing, you know, really new in unions. Um, often it's, of course, you know, usually based upon one's, um, you know, income levels. Everyone receives the same support, but uh, people uh, pay different amounts um, as, you know, what they can. Um, but this, you know, really is a quite, you know, different change. I'm not sure if it's ever been seen in a union in Australia before. Um, but I'd like to get your sort of general analysis of, um, Hospo Voice in this direction, sort of that it has been moving in. Um, do you think this is a recent sort of development or has it been, um, sort of reflective of what I see from my perspective as a gradual sort of change in this? Um, direction. I remember when Hospital Voice first started up, um, it was, you know, quite a radical online, you know, Australia's first digital union. Uh, it was played a very big role in the wage theft campaign, of course, which is, you know, since, since last week, um, taken effect, uh, mm-hmm. in Victoria. Um, but since then, you know, we've seen there was also another controversy around all these tips that, you know, the union was, um, giving forward about, you know, how to ask for a raise, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So do you see Hosper Voice as, um, sort of slowly moving in this direction of, um, away from its sort of, um, initial beginnings? 
Yeah, awesome question. I mean, obviously we're frustrated for a reason, and that reason is that we feel as though, um, you know, like exactly what you're saying, that this tiered membership model is emblematic of a wider issue of of not just our union, but I think a lot of unions in Australia and um, of gearing towards a service model um, as opposed to an organising model. So what we see is, I mean, you know, we can look at these tiers and, and they look familiar, you know, because they're the same things you see when you sign up for Netflix or an insurance company or get your NBN bundle or whatever. Um, you know, it, it, it's marketing itself as a service. And, and again, the limiting of the options and features is, is exactly that. And I think we you know, within the Australian union movement have seen so much of that taking place in the last, you know, whatever, 30 to 40 to 50 years. Um, and it's a, it's a horrendous problem because it moves away from engaging workers in the struggle. It moves away from notions of solidarity and empowerment and, and most importantly, I think, you know, industrial, act, industrial action and, and kind of, you know, realising that the actual power of our labour, our labour, rather. Um, so, you know, we're, we're confident, though, that that we can... We can change this, right? So I, I don't. I'd be reluctant to to kind of say that this is, um, you know, a symptom of a, a downward spiral that has no no potential to to reverse itself, or, or that that this is just kind of one of those things in the way to to being doomed, I guess. But um, like you said, with it's kind of brought to surface a lot of other issues about how we're operating, but it's been a really good opportunity to look quite critically at processes within the union and also, again, other unions and, and just kind of say, no, nah, actually, I think it's time we all sit down, recalibrate, revisit why we're here and, um, yeah, potentially reorient our goals and, and processes to meet those, um, you know, those kind of organising principles as opposed to the service model. Yeah, um, that's great to hear. And um, I guess that brings us sort of to the next question, the open letter specifically. Um, can you sort of elaborate a little bit about this campaign, what it's seeking to achieve, and, um, yeah, the sort of strategy that's going into this um, against uh, in the opposition against these tiered systems? Sure, of course. So um, there's a small group of us, uh, non, non-elected leaders, as we're kind of known as, but we're just, we're just hospital voice volunteers. Um, there's a small group of us who were, uh, I'm really reluctant to say consulted. We were briefed on the, um, changes to the membership model and we almost unanimously rejected them. Um, and then we engaged in correspondence with the decision makers. Uh, we sent them off a big letter. We received a response, um, ultimately after that took place, uh, it became <laughs> you know, incredibly apparent that, that it was going ahead regardless of our um, criticisms and or demands. So <clears throat> we decided the next logical step was to open up to the wider membership, so to, um, you know, really, really drive drive home uh, transparency with, our, with the wider hospitality, sorry, with the wider hospital voice membership. So we created an open letter. Um, so to generate support, but also just, you know, in the, with the MO of letting everyone know exactly what's happening in their union. Um, so we've turned our demands and our concerns into an open letter or a statement. And in that statement, we've also linked our original correspondence. So you can read everything that we've said and everything that's been said back to us so far as well um, for wider context. So I guess the strategy there, again, it's... Um, you know, it's, it's it's about generating awareness and, and letting everyone know what's happening because, uh, you know, Hotspur Voice has issued a couple of emails kind of explaining this uh, tiered membership model and, 
and we we're kind of looking to provide um, perhaps an explanation as to why it's, it's not on and, and also just our own, uh, <laughs> I guess, position on it. Um, yeah, but also just to to kind of get everyone's input and, and see if we're not alone in this, if the other members are, are also feeling kind of outraged or upset or, or contrary. And, and so far... Um, you know, that has been the case. We've we've received a lot of support. We've just cracked 300 signatures as of yesterday um, on our petition. So, yeah, onwards and upwards. <laughs> yeah, that's great to hear. And, you know, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on the way it progresses. And just to wrap up, I guess, the final question. I sort of mentioned um, Wage that before. That's been one of the... Um, you know, I guess defining campaigns that Hospa Voice has run, um, you know, since its uh, inception. Um, my question just is, what um, can we look broadly in the future to other sort of initiatives um, in the hospitality space and what sort of activities and campaigns we could be seeing there? Um yeah, awesome question. We've had a few campaigns uh, going over the last year or so that pertain to casual work, um, you know, like kind of ending or limiting the rampant casualization of our workforce, uh, kind of generating a, um, or agitating around sexual harassment in the workplace uh, and, you know, the protection of migrant workers' rights as well. Um, but I guess I think something that's kind of come up in this, di- this recent dialogue is uh, an interest that's kind of buzzing around membership and always has been towards, re, like I said before, kind of reorienting towards an organising model and kind of looking more closely at proper, proper, you know what I mean, bread and butter, grassroots, industrial organising, you know, workplace-specific organising. I think that's, um, it comes up time and time again. And I think that, uh, you know, instead of kind of doubling down on this service-based model, I think that there are a lot of us out there that would be quite interested in in, in doing quite the opposite so um you know whether that's to come i I couldn't couldn't predict uh right now but i guess that's that's kind of yeah it's brewing as part of as part of this current discourse i suppose well thank you very much um um grace um and I think this has been a very um, kind of informative kind of interview. And, um, yeah, we'll definitely um, be posting um, the open letter on our um, social media kind of pages. And, of course, we'll be attaching it to um, the podcasting of, of, of this kind of um, particular interview. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to thank you very much, Grace, um, for being on our program. And, yes, um, best of luck with... Um, the ongoing campaign with the union, especially against, you know, this whole union sort of bureaucratic kind of decision with, of introducing mm. tiered membership, but also solid, um, but also, um, the real kind of also the ultimate struggle obviously is against the bosses, um, the mm. bosses who are exploiting, um, hospo workers. And so, yeah, best of luck with that struggle as well. That's right. That's so awesome. Thank you so much. And, and yeah, for anyone that that reads the statement, please consider signing the petition and, and stand with us in solidarity. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Grace. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. All right, so you're just listening to Grace Darling, um, who is a HOSPO voice activist, and we're just having a discussion with her about the recent decision by HOSPO voice to introduce um, a tiered kind of membership kind of structure. And, of course, it's, yeah, it's a, definitely almost like a, a weird kind of thing to introduce in a union. It's almost like, um, it's almost like they, because I know I'm familiar with tiered membership structures when it comes to my gaming console, for example. There are tiered memberships, um, for 
online functionality um, within PlayStation or the Xbox exchange. But the fact that a member kind of driven organization, which is about, you know, building um, worker representation and, and so on is, is a, definitely a very backwards kind of step. And, you know, as kind of Leo said before um, in the interview, you know, most unions generally have a sliding scale kind of thing where, and everyone has the same rights regardless if you have to pay $20 a month. Like for now, I'm right now I'm paying like $20 or $40 a fortnight. I forgot. Um, I'm paying the casual rate for my membership of United Workers Union and I get the same rights uh, I'm entitled to contact with my industrial officer, my union organiser. Um, I'm no more than the other person who might pay more because they have a more a higher paying job. Yeah, and yeah, as Grace alluded to as well in the interview, it certainly is strange, but um, I think her comments also resonate with the fact that this isn't happening in isolation. Sure, this hospital voice example is strange and it's... Uh, we haven't, you know, seen something like this um, really before. Um, but at the same time, as she mentioned, more and more unions are moving towards a service rather than organising model. Um, and within this scope, we see, you know, unions not portrayed as a way to, you know, um, challenge the power that um, employers have in the workplace to guarantee things like health and safety, but rather just as little things to ameliorate uh, working um, conditions and, you know, it's, you know, the SDA comes to mind as the prime sort of example of this, um, you know, a union that has countless perks, but when it comes to actually representing workers, when it comes to actually fighting the power, you know, the sort of operative um, uh, feature of unions, it's very lacking in this space. But then that, that of course, also... Um, least the consideration of all sorts of systemic issues and, you know, declining union memberships and, um, an industrial relations law framework that really stifles union organizing in general. Yeah, very well said, Leo. Anyway, we'll just go play a quick announcement and we'll go on to the Green Left Activist Calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. <laughs> Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Okay, you are listening to Green Left Radio. And oh, and now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, just to announce um, all the kind of upcoming kind of activist events that are kind of coming up. Um, to start off on Tuesday, July the 13th, there's going to be a protest, um, Defend the Right to Protest at 9am outside the Magistrates Court um, on Jica Street, Heidelberg. And the context for this protest, this protest has been organised by Refugee Action Collective, and it concerns basically um, 
a number of people who were fined um, for organising a COVID kind of safe um, protest um, outside the Marcher Hotel when refugees were detained in Marcher Hotel. So, yeah, if you happen to live in the Heidelberg area, I imagine this will be a difficult protest to get to in the morning for some. Um, I definitely recommend trying to get along, um, getting along to the protest if you if you can. And it's just going to be at 9am at the Magistrates Court, Jaika Street in Heidelberg. Then on Friday, um, July the 16th, there's going to be a film screening, um, Gaza Fights for Freedom, um, which is going to be a documentary um, on Palestine, which basically um, depicts and captures the Great March of Return. And that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street in the city, um, with meal from 6pm. And that event, is been, uh, that event is a fundraiser for Green Left. And then on Saturday, um, July the 17th, there's going to be a public forum, Global North to South um, in Climate Justice and Activism, and that's going to be happening at 2pm at the Library at the Dock, 107 Victoria Harbour, Harbour Promenade in the Docklands. And so that's going to be happening on 2pm at the Library at the Dock. I, as far as I know, the interview, the event is actually being organised by Blockade IMARC Skew Up 2020. Um, so it's just a matter of checking the Blockade IMARC um, Facebook page um, to get the kind of full details on getting tickets and so on. Then on Monday, July the 19th, there's going to be um, a vigil, eight years too long, free the refugees at 5.30pm at Lincoln Square on Swanson Street in, um, in Carlton. And that's going to, yep, yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be an event that's been organised by Refugee Action Collective. And that's an event that's kind of marking um, the eight years since the introduced, introduction of the PNG solution um, by the ALP, which probably had the historical kind of significance of sort of cementing um, the ALP's um, um, abhorrent sort of refugee policy, um, because actually Prior to the introduction of the policy, there was some hope under the leadership of Kevin Rudd that there would be a change in refugee policy for Labor. And then on Thursday, um, July the 22nd, there's going to be a rally, Stop the East-West Link. At, um, that's going to be happening at 4.30pm at Manningham Square, 60, um, 687 Doncaster Road in Doncaster. And it's going to be sponsored by Stop North East Link campaign and Manningham Extinction Rebellion. And then on Friday, um, July the 23rd, there's going to be a fundraiser for West Papuan um, political prisoners, and that's going to be happening at 7.30pm at the Cafe Gummo, um, 711 High Street in Thornberry. And then on Saturday, um, July the 24th, there's going to be a film screening, Castro Spies, at 5.30pm at the Simonova. Um, to get um, um, info and bookings, just go on to the Simonova website. And then on Sunday, um, July the 25th, there's going to be a rally, Permanent Reasons Not Discrimination, Rally for Refugee Rights at the, at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street. And that's been organised by Refugee Voices and various different sort of refugee run groups. On Saturday, um, July the 31st, there's going to be, um, a protest organised by the Tamil Refugee Council, um, Sri Lanka Not Safe for Tamils, and that's going to be happening at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then on Monday, August the t- um, 2nd, there's going to be a public forum, um, indefinite detention for refugees, what the new law means. And that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre, 251 Faraday Street in Carlton. 
And then on Saturday, um, ra- um, August the 7th, there's going to be a rally, Stop Turkey's War on the Kurds, um, End Australia's Silence, and that's going to be happening at 2pm State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city, and it's organised by the Kurdish Democratic um, Community Centre, Victoria, and Australians for Kurdistan. Then on, just to give a bit of a plug for regional rent, just in case there's any regional listeners choosing, um, tuning in who live in the Geelong area, there's going to be um, a, a speak-out and the housing crisis in our community, and that's been organised by the new Geelong and Homeless um, Ness, uh, Geelong Housing Action Group. And that is going to be happening, just getting the details, on Saturday, August the 7th um, at 1pm Little Mallop Street in 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 the Little Marwick Strip in the mall in Geelong. And just to, um, um, a few other things, um, yeah, I might just go play, I think I'll play a quick announcement, um, and then, yeah, we'll play a quick announcement and we'll probably get on to our next interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on Desire in Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, um, you are listening to Green Left um, Radio, and on the line we are very happy to have um, David Ball, um, who is the Assistant Secretary of the MUA Victorian um, branch. And currently, um, there's actually going to be a kind of um, a rally um, 
where um, that um, the MUA is organising based on a negotiation with the company, the um, Switzer, or if I'm pronouncing it kind of correctly. Um, and yeah, Dave, we're going to have a bit of a discussion uh, a bit a bit about the dispute. So maybe we'll pass on to Leo to sort of ask the first question to start us off. Hey, uh, David, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Um, my question is just around the context and the background of this dispute. Could you elaborate on um, why this dispute is happening, um, why the action at midday today is happening, and um, what exactly um, Switzer has done um, to elicit this sort of response from the, from the MUA? Thanks, uh, Leo. Thanks. G'day, Leo and Jacob. Great to be uh, on your program. Yeah, so Spitzer are the largest towage company in Australia. They operate out of over about 23 ports. Um, they employ around a 1,000 maritime um, people. And there's three different uh, unions on a tugboat. There's the officers' union, the engineers' union, and the MUA. Obviously, we represent the MUA. So... We've been negotiating an EBA for over two years with Spitzer. Um, in February last year, we nearly had an agreement and then COVID hit. Um, Spitzer used COVID as, a, as an excuse to stop, stop negotiations. And when we got back to the table, which was via Zoom and Teams, which is not a great way to negotiate, they had 30 new claims that they put on the table. They were 30 union-busting claims and obviously uh, unacceptable to the MUA and the other two unions. So ever since then we've been at loggerheads and we just can't get can't get to an, an agreement up and they um, they also oh, during that period of time um, made the entire Geelong workforce redundant. Um, that was done in an underhanded way. They developed the company while negotiations were taking on with that taking place with that Geelong workforce. So we didn't know what was happening. They made uh, the entire Geelong workforce redundant and they've re-entered the port of Geelong with a labour hire company called uh, Strategic Workplace Solutions. They're trying to get crew. I believe they're having trouble getting crew, which is good because you wouldn't imagine that that would be a great place to work, taking the jobs of family people from Geelong. But um, So that's happened as well. So, yeah, we're really at war with them at the moment. And at 12 o'clock today, the... Um, the Victorian MUA members who work on work in the towage industry are going to walk off the job for 12 hours, taking protected industrial action, and um, we're going to have a rally down at uh, the bottom of Karingal Way, out the front of the Spitzer workplace, and we're really looking forward to having all the other unions and activists support us. Yeah, and um, what do you, I guess I want to go back and ask what, in terms of like the conditions that I guess workers who are currently facing that are um, working at this port, and in terms of like what are kind of the type of demands that you are demanding of the company? We re- we're really uh, we have a pretty good agreement, and we'd be more than happy if Spitzer would take their thirty claims off the table. They have taken about a dozen of those claims off the table, but there's uh, a couple of claims that we just can't allow coming to our industry. One of them is. You know, they want to have they want to have the ability to bring a casual worker in and only pay them two hours pay. You know, that's just unacceptable for our industry. We we all our workers do twelve hour shifts. There's no such thing as a, an hourly rate, really. It's it's a twelve hour shift, and to go back to two hours would just be uh, uh, totally unacceptable. So that's one of the conditions. Um, there is a couple of others, but. Uh, you know, generally speaking, if we could maintain our current conditions, we'd be very happy. 
Mm. And one of the kind of things I want to sort of go into is um, one of the issues, one of the issues that it's characterised, I guess, a lot of these kind of disputes that the MUA um, has kind of faced for like the past kind of several kind of years has been, I guess, this kind of issue of automation. Um, that is, the bosses have basically tried to essentially try to automate a lot of these ports and these workplaces. And of course, the effects have disproportionately be, um, been felt on the workers themselves, because essentially with automation, um, the bosses themselves basically try to use it as excuse to cut working conditions, um, cut the hours of workers, and also, yeah, cutting... Um, and I kind of want to hear some of your comments on that kind of trend that has been kind of observed in these sort of past several years with these disputes. Well, problem for our industry, um, but we have uh, we have evidence to prove that um, our members can be a lot more productive than any automated system that is available today. You take the example of VICT down there at Web Dock; it's the most automated port in Australia. Um, the the Workers at Swanson Dock, East Swanson Dock and West Swanson Dock have a much higher uh, productivity rate than down there. So um, even though the boss has been pushing for automation, it, it seems to be just really a, a union-busting strategy because it's not about productivity. Fortunately for our... Well, there is, fortunately for our, tug, our tugboat crew, uh, there is a great deal of automation, although I do believe there is um, some sort of... Um, uh, line throwing apparatus being developed, but at the moment, um, yeah, it's not really automated, which is good. Hmm. And um, I want to kind of get maybe, um, do you, I guess, any kind of um, final comments, I guess, David, that you'll kind of like to make, like how people can um, show, um, demonstrate solidarity with these striking workers, uh, a kind of another plug for the action today, because I'm, I'm sure some listeners may be able to get along to the action today. And, yeah, any kind of final comments you, I guess, want to make in, more generally? Yeah, thanks for that. So the action is at 12 o'clock today at Karingal Way in Port Melbourne, and we'd appreciate everyone who could find the time to come down and meet us. The mother company of Spitzer is Maersk Shipping, one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. Maersk Shipping have an office at uh, 600 Burke Street, Melbourne. The action this week's out the front of Spitzer. The action next week will be out the front of Burke Street, out the front of Maersk Shipping in Melbourne. So look forward to that one. We have got Fremantle Port taking action next week. They've actually gone to two 24-hour strikes, so it's really gearing up around the country. Um, really looking forward to it. What we really want is an agreement with Fitzer, and we want our Geelong workforce put back into place and get those uh, those people that shouldn't be there out of the port. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, David. And, yes, I'll definitely see you down at the action today. Um, I'm going to be attending there. And, yeah, best of luck um, and solidarity um, with your struggle. Thanks, Thanks, Comrade. All right. Okay, you're, ju- um, you're just hearing um, from David Ball, who is um, the Assistant Secretary of the MRA, um, speaking about um, the current kind of dispute that they're having with the Schweitzer, Switzer, um, who, are ba- um, who are basically, yeah, um, trying to push all these kind of union-busting um, claims onto the union, um, including trying to introduce casualisation of the workforce um, and so on. And there's going to be basically um, a protest at the... At 
Port Melbourne um, at 12 p.m. And I just want to get the I'll just get the details for that quickly. It's going to be at Coringa Way in Port Melbourne. And just for listeners' information, um, I think in terms of trying to get there, it does require a car, although. I did look up. I'm going to try and cycle there. It's pretty easy to cycle there from looking at the Google Maps. And I think there might be some limited public transport if you potentially take a bus around to the Fisherman Bend sort of area and then it's sort of walking distance from there. But anyway, I haven't really completely checked, but I think, yeah, it's probably best to if you have a car or a cycle or something, that's probably the best way to get there. It's not necessary. These kind of ports are not necessarily... That um, these industrial ports are not necessarily that accessible by public transport because they generally don't have that much um, sort of activity. Um, yeah, you, generally they're not. They're places that are not necessarily designed for ordinary sort of random people to just sort of visit and 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 so on. And I just remember that being kind of my experience with um, the web doc dispute when I visited the picket line. You just had to had to go out of my way to basically cycle there. Okay, well, we still have a, um, a, a, a bit of time left, um, so we will, we'll probably um, have a quick discussion of a new, um, new story, but for now, I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Well, if you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, it's so know where you are. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. We'll check out the happy vibe. We're gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. What? Who the hell is that? Clap your hands. What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we have about, um, I guess, 10 kind of minutes sort of left, and I just wanted to give a bit of kind of updates on some of the, some of the news stories that we actually covered in kind of previous kind of weeks, and so basically a, a, a bit of a kind of campaigns report on some of the kind of ongoing kind of campaigns that are currently happening. Now, one thing we previously um, spoke about on the program um, with Councillor Sue Bolton has been this campaign to save the outdoor pool in Faulkner. And essentially the Moreland Council is... Um, has basically they've made this argument that they're going to be upgrading the, um, the Faulkner kind of ledger centre but attached in kind of fine print, and this has been a, um, this has led to community opposition. Um, they are essentially going to be closing down the outdoor pool as part of this so-called leisure centre upgrade. And of course, you know, pool outdoor pools are actually very important, especially for a working class kind of suburb like Faulkner. It's actually a means by which you know ordinary people can socialize have a bit of a swim in win- uh, in summer not winter it's just a, it sometimes gets a bit weird talking about this campaign in the context of the fact we're living in a massively cold winter at the moment and anyway um the 
um, that um, the um, the Save Faulkner Pool um, outdoor pool campaign um, has basically had um, organised their first action um, last Saturday, and that attracted around over I think around uh, 200 kind of people. Um, it was a, a community kind of orientated kind of action. Um, it had speakers from the community talking about the the importance of the pool and and so on. And I think you know for a small kind of local um, community campaign attracting around um, around 150 to 200 people for their first action I think is quite significant. The next kind of campaign update I want to kind of follow up on is we did an interview last week with um, the Geelong Library um, with the ASU um, Deputy Secretary about the um, Geelong um, Library workers in Geelong going on strike and now they walked off um, reporting from Green Left. They um, walked off the on off the job on July second as part of a rolling campaign of protected industrial action for better paying conditions. And the report kind of suggests um, that you know there was a very good sort of festive atmosphere with the strike, with solidarity being the key theme. There was a lot of support from um, from trade different trade unions and the community for this action. And of course. To give a bit of a kind of updates, um, um, in ter- is basically despite the kind of prolonged kind of bargaining period, management has yet, even of today, as far as I know, has yet to make an offer of acceptable wages and conditions. And the next kind of thing is um, one one of the most of the library workers in this regional centre city are, are women who earn less than thirty five thousand a year. Most of their wages are b- almost twenty percent below, 20% below um, Melbourne libraries and are lower than most regional libraries. And of course, the other thing as well, um, they all, they the other thing that the workers have been demanding in this context is they want a variety of shifts and penalty rates and improvements to basic safety, including having all the libraries staffed by two people and a permanent security presence at the main library. Management has really only made a minimum pay offer, claiming that it is generous given the economic difficulties. The union has stated that it has not taken up the workers' safety concerns, and of course the only thing it has really offered is providing a minimum shift length of two hours and to give venue higher staff penalty rates after 11pm. And at the same time, it is trying to, um, da- it has been attempting to dock workers' pay for undertaking work to rule protected actions, which the union's angry about. In fact, just one sort of funny story on note, um, this was just a Facebook comment from, I think, one of the workers, or it was a comment from one of the workers, but basically, um, no, it was actually a community member who I think observed this, but basically a jo- um, one of the Geelong kind of library workers um, tried to give a leaflet for the strike action um, to, a, to a customer. And essentially what had happened is management saw this and said, well, we're docking your pay by the second that it took you to give that leaflet to someone, um, which would like basically, 30, you're, basically you took... Um, I think they tried to dock like 30 seconds of one minute of a worker's pay, which, to be honest, the amount of um, calculations that the the accountant will have to make, uh, yeah, you know, the amount of labour that would have to be done to date is, yeah, it's purely kind of ridiculous. And I think it's just a way of kind of management trying to throw their kind of weight. And I guess one of the things um, to highlight about the strike, reading more from the Green Left article, is the strike has highlighted the inherent kind of injustice uh, in the widespread practice of undervaluing and underpaying of female-dominated industries. And, of course, 
to repeat a kind of fact that was kind of um, said um, before. Geelong Regional Library Corporation has consistently been ranked as one of the best libraries, public libraries in Victoria, yet its workers received the fourth worst pay in the state. And, of course, the, one of the sort of important things as a socialist, you know, libraries are kind of one of the most important sort of public services that we have. And, of course, there are things... You know, the workers who work in libraries should be properly paid with full um, working conditions. Um, so, yeah, we'll definitely be giving more updates on that strike. And in fact, we're hoping to have a bit of an d- interview and discussion with one of the leading union delegates in the future, um, maybe when this strike is all concluded, because there's quite an amazing story in terms of um, in terms of union rank and file union activism in that whole dispute, like just how. They've built their member, um, their active membership up from nothing and have basically, um, evolved into one of the best unionized work, um, of library work, um, places. So, yeah. Um, Leo, do you have any kind of like final comments you want to make? No, just to sort of wrap up and to draw a connection, I guess, between these two things that we just talked about, the Dufton Pool and the Geelong Library. Um, they're both very localized, community important, um, Issues, they relate to services that working class people um, rely on and it really shows, one, um, the strength of community campaigns and the way uh, we need to go about to get the changes that we need and two, um, the way that, you know, these services are constantly under attack and that we have to, um, as workers, as socialists, as those who support um, public services, we have to support um, both, you know, public infrastructure and also the workers um, who allow these public services to be provided. So as Jacob mentioned, we'll be providing updates um, on these issues um, and keep you up to date. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Leo. And we're getting, I guess, to the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, and I hope we, we look forward to another week of Radical Radio next Friday. Um, stay tuned for Earth Matters, which will be playing after this. And, yeah, um, all, solidarity and with all of you. And, um, yeah, we look forward to speaking to you all next week. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 800 634-206. Arise you workers from this farmers. Arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.